Welcome to the Ministry Podcast. It is such a privilege that you would tune in. All of my content is designed to bring hope to the dreamers and doers that Jesus offers us a better way to life and Jesus offers us a better way to lead. I hope you enjoy today's episode. We're continuing uh, in Ephesians, so I'd love for you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Um, I feel like, I guess it would be any book in the Bible because it's the Bible, but man, I just really believe this is exactly what we need to hear, and I'm just so grateful for God and his mercy for kind of giving us the wisdom to go through Ephesians together, and I'm not going to lie, I was, uh, at our church, what we like to do is just preach the Bible, and with that though, um, Sometimes it's hard to preach the Bible because sometimes it's hard to understand or it says things that are a little bit more convicting than we'd like. And verses 1 through 13, I labored all week. I told Jordan, I said, I don't know anything anymore because I cannot figure this passage out. You just read it. Just wait till we read it. You'll be like, what does this mean? And I just, man, it's a labor of love, but I'm so grateful because when you dig, you get gold. Amen. And I really believe this is what we need to hear. So starting verse 1 in Ephesians chapter 3 says this, for this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Underline this word mystery. We're going to look at that. As I have briefly written above, which is Ephesians 1 and 2. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the, again, mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 7, I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace, are you guys lost yet? (laughs) All right, verse eight. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, I love his humility, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery, there's that word again, hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's, underline this word, multifaceted, some of yours might be manifold, wisdom may now be made known through the church. And I, man, this is so good. To the rulers and authorities in the heavens. We're talking about who that is. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, this might be the, the takeaway, in him, in Christ, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then, I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. The title of today's message is The Reality of Revival. I want to talk about tonight the reality of revival. Since I was 13, I knew that I, would, I was going to be in pastoral ministry of some sort. And so at the age of 13, I started studying as many theological books as possible. I went to every conference, not just at the age of 13, up, up until whatever. But I, I just tried, I did everything in 13. I read, no, so I went, read every book, read every, uh, heard every podcast, and I really wanted to learn. A, a pastor told me, up until you're 40... Most of pastoral ministry, I would say just leadership in general, is about learning. My, my, what I need to do at my age is to understand my primary job is to learn alongside of you and learn together. The next thing from about 40 to 60, you need to leverage. 
you have that authority. You've put in those years of blood and sweat. And so you're able to kind of move things quicker. You're able to get more people gathered because they respect you. You've earned it. You got some gray hairs, maybe. All right. And then 60 to 80, it's all about leaving. It's all about passing it on to the next generation. So, so much of my life has just been about still just learning. I love learning. And I really believe that if the leader learns, so the people will. Well, the number one thing I've learned when it comes to leadership is vision. Clarity might be another way to say it. If you want to lead a church, you need to be a person of clarity. You need to know where you're going and you need to let people know how we're going to get there. A lot of people say vision leaks, so you need to remind them every six weeks. You got to tell them over and over again, here's why we're here. That's why we say constantly, we are passionately pursuing the life and lifestyle of Christ in Queen Creek. That is our vision. That is the heartbeat of our church. And we put it on shirts. We put it on everything. We're called to do God time, gather time. I got a new shirt today. And we're sporting it. I was so mad that Caleb and Shelby were wearing it today. We need to coordinate that. Anyways, it's all about clarity. Here's the problem, of course. Clarity was kind of thrown out the window in 2020, right? How many people, it's so fun, the 2020 sermons on January 1st or whatever, we're going to, 2020 is going to be the best year yet. And everybody's saying, you liar, you know? I know you don't hear from God if you told me that, right? So clarity has been thrown out the window in some things. Now, obviously, many things, there are some things we can still be clear about. But in many things, we aren't clear anymore. We don't know what tomorrow brings, let alone the next five years. I don't feel comfortable telling you, okay, this is our five-year plan. We're just, honestly, I think we're all just trying to make it right now. So what I actually think, and I think we see it in this text right here, even more than clarity, which I think is clarity is so foundational to leadership. I think we need courage. I think in this time, we need steadfastness. We need stability. We need to keep going. Perseverance. The best way maybe is courage. I want you to think about this because I've heard a lot of people right now talking about revival. We need revival. We all want revival to be a reality, but do we want the reality of a revival? We want, we want it to become a reality, but guess what? There is a reality to it. It's pretty difficult. It's pretty tough. In the 1960s, there's this historian. His name was Daniel Borston. And he warned us about living in what would he would call the unreality. He was nervous because uh, by the 1960s, about 90% of every home in America had a TV. And, and it really shaped culture. It's funny how we always point to the 1960s as the time where everything kind of shifted um, in our worldview. And he actually, I thought was pretty wise. Um, this is just a side note. He was talking about TV advertisements and he did not want it. He said, he called it propaganda, which is what it is, amen? He said, propaganda on television won't just increase untruthfulness, but it will begin to reshape our very concept of truth. Is that not true today? He said something even smarter than that. Just wait, it'll be on the screen. I think this is helpful for us in this time. He said again, mind you, in the 1960s, we risk being the first people in history to have been able to make their illusions so vivid so persuasive, so realistic, VR anybody, right, that they can live in them. We are the most illusioned people on earth. Yet we dare not become disillusioned because our illusions are the very house in which we live. They are our news, our heroes, our adventure, our forms of art, our very experience. 
Here's why that's so scary. Revival is hard. But we have an illusion that revival is easy. Paul here, the Ephesians, are tremendously discouraged. Paul, the pastor, the apostle Paul, says he, we just learned in chapter 3, he's actually in prison. He's in prison in Rome because of the gospel. In fact, he's in prison because he spoke to the Jews and said the Gentiles are allowed into the kingdom of God. And, and that was a very controversial statement to make. And I think much like Ephesus, you and I, I think we tend to believe if it requires suffering long term, it's probably not from God. But Paul is trying to get us to know, actually, don't be discouraged because the suffering is the very sign that we're probably on the right path. But this is hard. I'm not going to lie. I heard this pastor on YouTube this week. Some of y'all sent him to me, and he talked about how September is going to be bad, November is going to be the worst, and all this stuff. And I just read my Bible. I don't care about, well, I care about YouTube because I post, but uh, yeah, I don't care. Um, but I was thinking, like, I got a little fear in my heart, right? And I just, I asked God, I said, God, I want to be the man that takes this with courage. I want our church. I don't want us looking for it, but I think it's going to come. And I want us to be ready. So verse 1 through 13, you actually, maybe in your verse in your Bible, in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, there's this long dash, and it's really a parenthetical statement. You actually see him pick it up. So he starts in, chapter, in verse 1 for this reason, and then he goes, oh, wait, I need to tell you something. I need to, he takes a pastoral break. He, he goes, okay, I recognize you're probably really nervous that I'm suffering, so let me give you encouragement why suffering is the very thing I need to do and how you need to follow me in my example. And then he picks back up, come next week, verse 14 is a beautiful prayer, which I think we need in this time. And in this moment. So Paul's suffering is causing people doubt, is causing people fear, and it's giving people discouragement. Can we not agree? We are kind of feeling those same things. And Paul's answer is not that there's no suffering, but there is a God who has suffered for us already, and he is with us in the suffering. So take heart, he says, because revival, look, is made a reality. We're going to look at three points tonight. When the church is, one, willing to suffer, Two, willing to serve, and three, willing to stand. Aren't you glad you came tonight? All right? Let me pray. Father God, I ask for your grace and for your mercy and most of all your wisdom tonight. God, we need courage. None of that comes from the flesh. We need courage that comes from the Spirit. I pray that we'd be so encouraged by your passage tonight. God, I pray that you'd use this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, sorry, the chapter 3. The same way you've used it for the last 2,000 years. And that's calling your church to rise up and to be the church. In Jesus' name I pray. The church says, amen. Amen. So again, I wrestled with this text, and I think there's three points in this passage, not just because I'm a Baptist and every sermon has three points, but I really believe there are three main words here, especially in the ESV or other translations. The first one, it's also in the CSB, is mystery. Then we're going to look at ministry, of starting in verse 7. He talks about how he's serving in the gospel, his ministry, and then multifaceted is the last word. We're going to look at those. That's going to take our time together. Let's first look at mystery. Verse 1 says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, oh, parenthetical, let me, real quick, assuming you've heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you, the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have briefly written above. Verse 6, the Gentiles, here's what the mystery is, the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here's point number one. The mystery of the gospel 
transforms our courage. We all know we need courage. It is actually this mystery, this truth of the gospel, that gives us the courage that we need. So this word mystery is not... Anybody read the Hardy Boys growing up? Any Hardy Boy fan? How about Nancy Drew? And, okay, yeah, and the girls raised their hand on that. Yeah, and I was... Oh, yeah, boys, Hardy Boys, girls, Nancy Drew. So those mystery novels... Don't think of that at all. This is not what mystery means in the biblical text, okay? It's not some spy novel at all. What he simply means, this word mystery, it's literally the Greek word mysterion, means this. It's something we would have never come up with on our own. So, so guess what? We know the mystery. So don't be like, oh, I have to figure out. It's a mystery. Not everybody, when they read this, understands it. So I'm going fi- to, no, it's, it's very, it's plain as day. Ever since Christ came, it's very clear. However, If God did not come down and bring revelation, we would have never figured this out. We would have never figured out the gospel because honestly, it doesn't make sense. Because here's the thing, we don't dream of good news, we only come up with good advice. The problem is the good advice always falls short, reference Ephesians 2, when we talked about how we are dead in our sins and there's nothing we can do. Here's what we come up with if it's on our own power. Number one, we try to come up with um, some focus on peace with God. So we all know there's something wrong in this world. There's something wrong with our soul. And so some, a lot of religions, uh, most religions say, okay, we have to figure out a way to make peace with a God or gods or something of that nature. If you're here last week, what you really lean into is conviction. You need to be a people of truth and conviction. So you're trying to figure out which, which holy text is the right text and how do we make peace with God. And it's all about appeasing God and it's all about sacrifice to God. And so, so many religions in our area, we have those that are so works-based. And so the way you make peace with God is you have to keep performing and keep performing and praise God. He came down and showed us this thing called grace. Amen. We could have never come up with it on our own, but he shows us that he did the Christian life for us. In fact, they named it after him. Christ is the Christian life. But some focus on peace with God, but without the God-man, there's no way we can have peace. But another part, some people... They don't focus on peace with God. That's not their answer to life. Their purpose in life is to focus on peace with man, or like we referenced last week, cooperation. And I think that's a big part of what's happening today. A lot of the popular culture doesn't even believe in any divinity, any God at all. So of course, what you're looking to do is to have peace with man. Here's the problem though, just how we need to appease God. When you focus just on peace with man and you have no other solutions, you wind up trying to appease others. What we're finding, though, is you can't appease everybody. And so what you decide is, okay, we have to pick groups. Who's the right people and who is the wrong people? And let us appease and say, hey, we're team this people, and that makes us feel better about ourselves. And of course, just how in man-made religion you sacrifice to God in so many different ways, with peace with man, you wind up sacrificing others. You, you, you climb and in, in, in capital by, by throwing people under the bus. You, you look like you're this great person by saying, that whole group right there, I hate them. Don't worry. It's virtue signaling. And we're seeing how it's these people, we're saying we want peace, and yet all we're doing is adding more division. Amen? What we need is a mystery. It's a truth that we cannot come up with on our own. And that's why as Christians, we ought to have the most confidence in this time, because to me, it is, I feel like secularism is being exposed right now. Like, that's actually not the answer. And it's becoming more and more clear. You know you have something worth living for if it's something worth suffering for. That's what we have in Christ. We would have never dreamt of the gospel. We would have never thought up 
the God-man coming down in the flesh. Tim Keller put it this way. He's the best. Uh, Here's the quote on the screen. What is the gospel? The gospel, this mystery, the gospel is that the Son of God came to earth and triumphed through weakness and suffering. He won through losing. He gained everything by giving it all away. He overcame your and my sin and guilt by taking it on himself. We would have never come up with that. And this mystery has been revealed not just to the Jews, but also to the majority of us in the room, the Gentiles. By the way, Gentile simply means if you're not of Jewish descent, you are a Gentile. And the beautiful thing, and I think the point we have in verse 6, is not just that God reconciled us to him, but also God made a way where we can be reconciled with man. Not only can we have peace with God, but we can also have peace with man. And the church has the unique opportunity to show, remember last week if you were here, we are different and dependent. There are some differences, but at the same time, we lean on each other in community and we learn from each other. We like to say a lot at our church, we love to dwell in diversity rather than cater to conformity. And this is the message of the gospel. This is the mystery. Because the Jews knew in Genesis 12, Abraham said, through you, all the nations will be blessed. But they never imagined that the Gentiles would actually be a part of the family of God. They thought they'd be saved or blessed somehow, but they never could have thought that those pagan Gentiles would become our brothers and sisters. And this is the mystery of the gospel. And friends, do we not need this today? Do we not need not only that you can have peace with God, but friends, we can have tangible, real peace with others? So this is why I say this gives us immense courage because we have a wisdom that literally the world cannot possess outside of Christ. This gives us courage. This gives us, we know that Jesus is better and we have the right answer. Humanity wants what we have, but cannot fathom how to actually get it done despite our knowledge in science, despite how much we have advanced in medicine and technology. It seems even though we have advanced so many ways, we cannot figure out the soul. That's because the God-man did that for us. So this is groundbreaking for us. And so what we have to recognize is this is worth suffering for. This good news, it it actually is offensive to the world because we're the only ones with the right answer. And it really makes people upset. And of course, we are in a demonic, uh, we're we're struggling against the the prince of the power of the air and all that. So so here's the next sub-point under this. I want us to know and believe, and I think it's according to this passage, The church is worth suffering for. For too long, what we love to do is complain about church. But how many of us are willing to take pain for the church? That's why Paul says, be encouraged. I'm suffering for you. Now, here's my thing, though. Maybe you want to write this down. The church cannot end suffering if it will not endure suffering. We must first go through it to take people through it. But we have to suffer rightly. We have to suffer the right way. And so that's why I want to give three quick sub points for us as a church. How can we suffer rightly? 
I'm using psychological terms. I've really enjoyed uh, different books lately about uh, family systems theory and that kind of thing. I think it's helpful for this moment. Um, number one, one way that we suffer, I would argue wrongly, is what psychologists call detachment. Detachment. Should be on the screen as well. Perfect. The best way, kind of a simplified way to talk about detachment is you ignore suffering. So you're somebody who detaches themselves from the situation. Now, should some of us detach from the news a little more? Yes and amen. All right? So there needs to be some balance here. Some people, guys, there's a life out here. There's real people. Quit getting caught up in the narratives that they spin. Okay? Now, at the same time, though, there is a way to be absent and disengaged and never understanding what's going on in the culture at large. And as Christians, we ought to care about what's going on because we, again, have the answer. So again, I would say the people, I would actually say in many ways, I fall into this category where I'd rather ignore suffering. I'm somebody who avoids pain at all costs. Um, I just don't love it. Okay. I'm just being honest. And so we don't, we don't act like it's not happening. We, I mean, we don't say that the, what, all the wrong in the world is right. We just don't want to talk about it at all. We, we plead the fifth. And so really, I think the church at large is probably tends towards detachment because look, I can be right with God. It doesn't matter about being right with man. I'm right with God. Don't, I don't want to talk to you. This is the wrong way to suffer. It's just to ignore it altogether, ignore the pains of the world. And I think it's why people aren't coming to the church to find answers because we haven't been coming to them. Second way to deal with suffering is called enmeshment. This is what I would call you adore suffering. This is like that person that says, I don't do drama. Okay, I don't even, that's not even my wheelhouse of thought. So when you tell me I don't do drama, I know you do drama. You know what I'm saying? Like it was on your mind. It was never on my mind. I don't do drama. Red flag. You know what I'm saying? Enmeshment. Well, here's what it is. And so they're saying, I don't want to be like the detachment people. I, they're suffering in this world. I want to be there. But what you wind up doing is you get fully pulled into everybody's problems. And you think you're solving anxiety by just coming in and offering more anxiety. You just get stressed out. Oh, the whole world. Man, I'm such a good person. I'm suffering with everybody. Ah, you know, how are you helping? We, in some weird psychopathic way, some of us adore suffering because we feel it's like gossip, right? It's like, I just, you know, you just want to know what's all the bad stuff that's going on. So we cannot have enmeshment where we we bring our anxiety. We don't detach ourselves. We are fully engulfed. And we don't bring any solutions, which let me argue, sometimes you shouldn't give all the answers. You should just sit and listen and cry. But five months, five months, I don't know. You eventually have to help them get out of where they're in. And that's why theologically, I mean, psychologically, they, they call this differentiation is the third term. I wish it was a different word, to be honest. It's a little weird and I don't fully understand it. But essentially what this is, and I think it's what Paul is doing, is you endure suffering. You, you have the right perspective about it. You acknowledge it, but you don't let it run your life. You notice the anxiety, but you don't allow it to cause more anxiety in your own life. But you're still serving. I actually think Paul says it right here. Verse 1, for this I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ. So he's saying, I'm a prisoner. I am suffering with you, but Christ is in control. So I'm a prisoner, but of Christ Jesus. You think I'm a Roman prisoner. Uh Uh-uh, I'm a prisoner of Christ. So I'm suffering. I'm acknowledging the suffering, but at the same time, acknowledging God's sovereignty. Maybe I'm not explaining it best. Here's Steve Cuss, and then we'll move on. He has a really good book called Managing Leadership Anxiety. He has this quote I think is super, super helpful. 
An enmeshed leader struggles with codependency, but calls it empathy. Oh, okay, that's, that'll get you. The detached leader struggles with indifference and thinks it is healthy. I don't get affected by them. In contrast, a differentiated leader is fully present, but fully intact. You bring the light to the dark world. And guess what? You can't come up with this on your own power just because you have the courage. I believe you have this kind of presence about you when you spend time in the presence of God. The, the term is withdraw and return. As Christians, we're called to withdraw. Be with God in the quiet place. Jesus would constantly go in isolation and spend time with the Father. And then he would return and engage. Some of us are just engaging and engaging and engaging and we are burnt out and all we're doing is we're watching more and more conspiracy theory videos and we are stressed out of our mind. <laughs> Others of us have thrown away the iPhone. We have withdrawn from the world. We're just so grateful for all these books that we have and you don't know your neighbor's name. There has to be that balance. We desperately need this. This should be the sermon, but I, I want to preach more, okay? So let's keep going. Verse 7. Oh, gosh. Verse 7 says, I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. He is describing his ministry here. And this is point number two, main point. The ministry of the gospel transcends our capacity, I have been overwhelmed about the needs of this world, and this passage has given me so much hope, it's never been about my strength in the first place, amen? In fact, we are allowing us, when we notice how hard this, this whole situation is, we're making way for the working of his power. Again, he's saying, I was made a servant of this gospel. Paul is defending his ministry. We know in Acts 9, Paul, he's the one who murdered Christians, but now he became a Christian, right? And so he was actually given the really tough task to preach to the Gentiles. This was difficult. Reaching Gentiles is even harder than you and I could imagine. We're actually super blessed tonight. We have the Miller family. Uh, they are missionaries in Thailand. Because of COVID-19, they are stuck here stateside. So pray that they, you'll see them at the end of the service. But just talking to him at lunch today, so for four years, it took four years to finally get some converts. It's tough. It's hard ground. But it's worth it, amen? And the reality is, the gospel transcends our capacity. He, he works through our weakness. Let me give you some examples why it was tough for Paul and it's tough for us to preach the gospel in this era. Paul, it was hard for him to preach to the Gentiles because Gentiles believed in many gods. And Paul was given the task to tell them there is only one. This seemed impossible to them. Not only that, many of them believed in territorial gods. So they believed once you pass Blythe and go into California, now there is a California god right? Which, good luck, plastic, plastic, yeah, Blythe, you, you just run through there. You know what I'm saying? I'm just kidding. Um, but then you have the Arizona God, which is obviously the God of the sun, you know, or whatever, and all this stuff. And so they believe it's territorial gods. And so he is, Paul is given the task, it's the God of the world. And they're like, what? There's a God that big? Friends, we have the hard task of just trying to prove that there is even one God. This is the task at hand. They never believed that Jesus could be a reality because God would never take on the flesh. The flesh is evil. The Greeks believed this, that the flesh is wrong and evil. Who can trust the flesh? Today, we believe our flesh, there's no way it's evil. If it's what my flesh wants, it's what it deserves. It's what it will get. 
And so we are seen as heathens, as mean people, for saying actually deny the flesh and, and make way for the Spirit. It's difficult. It's actually funny. For Gentiles, they could not imagine that a God would suffer. You're telling me Jesus came and suffered? You're telling me he gained it all by losing it all? No, in the Gentiles, they believe God's made us so that God's would no longer have to suffer and we would do the suffering for them. It's funny for us today, we don't have that problem. In fact, our apologetic, people say, how dare God would let us suffer? Kind of different issues. Still hard nonetheless. That's why he says, by the working of his power. The Greek word is energion. Power is dunamis, where we get dynamite. We're given this endurance, this energy, this dynamite power because of him. It's so cheesy, but I love it. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Amen? It's not about our skills. It's actually about our suffering. And I would argue it's about our serving. Next subpoint: The church is worth serving under. So not only is the church worth suffering for, but friends, the church is worth serving under. But we must serve rightly. Here's quick three ways that we can serve, and I hope we pick the last one. Number one is self-righteousness. There is a way to serve the church in a self-righteous manner. You're coming to church to prove I am better than you, or I am better than them. I've got this figured out. The Jews struggle with this. The Jews did not want to welcome the Gentiles. They're saying, bro, we've been here. Who are you Gentiles? We're better than you. Self-rejection. Some of you have yet to serve the church because you're like, I'm not good enough. I I don't know enough. I can't teach the children anything. There's so much I need to learn. That is the enemy whispering lies. And and, and you are allowing to to just bathe in self-rejection. Self-rejection says you're better than me. Pick. They're better than me. You're better than me. And so you live your life in condemnation. What God is calling us to do because we have his power is self-forgetfulness. Look at um, verse 8. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. He's saying everybody's better than me. It doesn't matter, though, because Jesus is better. That's the mantra of my life. He's better for me. He's better for you. He's the one who's going to give me the power that I need. And he's going to give us incalculable riches. There's so many things because Jesus is just that good. We're self-forgetful. I didn't even think about me when I'm serving. I'm thinking about you and serving you and loving you. Church, we won't have revival if we keep coming and saying, how will they serve me? It'll only happen. How can I serve you? And that only happens when you recognize how much Jesus has served you already. The power of the gospel. I love the gospel. Are you a fan? I'm the biggest fan. We got the answer, guys. It's so good. We got to tell more people about it. Okay, so the church is worth suffering for. The church is worth serving under in so many different capacities. This one might be hard for a lot of us. The church is worth standing with. The church is worth standing with. Let's look at verse 10. This so that, the, that God's multifaceted wisdom may be known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This word multifaceted could also be manifold. It's actually the same word used to refer to Joseph's coat of many colors in the Greek Septuagint. So it's showing how many, it's just so colorful So it's saying the gospel crosses all ethnic barriers. It crosses all socioeconomic barriers. It crosses our gender barriers. There is, we're all one in Christ. We are unified. 
And not only that, though, we talked about this last week, we are different and dependent. We're all one family, but we have still remaining with us how unique we are. And actually, when we are unified like that, we are preaching to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. What are the rulers and authorities in the heavens? I'm so glad you asked. We looked at that in Ephesians chapter 6. The rulers are the demons and the angels. This is the demonic and the angelic world. Here's the thing about demons. They... They are so used to dividing the church because, church, we can't get over our differences. They take so much joy in infighting. They love division. They are shocked when we do the hard work of unity. According to verse 10, they don't know what to do. God's glory, his wisdom is shown, and they are like, what do we do now, devil? because they are actually living in unity. Brian Chapel described this part of the section so beautifully. He says, Just as Paul's sin makes the grace of God more apparent, the uniting of sinners in the body of Christ makes the grace of God more brilliant, even to the host of heaven. This is the apex of Paul's thought about the church. Here we learn that the church is intended not only to transform the world, but also to transfix heaven. Friends, the multi-faced gospel is transfixing the cosmos. We have a gospel that even the demons shudder about. That is so, I put multi-faced because I want you to think about you. So many different throughout church history, but also today, all throughout the world, so many different ways we present the beauty of the gospel. And so I want us to really think about how can we stand with the church? Because that is what apparently seizes the demons. They don't know what to do with that. So I think we need to do that. And so I gave some examples. I was thinking, what are some ways that the church needs to be more unified in? I was so upset. Just on the, I hope he's not watching. Whatever. The other day on Instagram, I put that there's this great song. It's, it's an hour long. And it's just like, I don't know. It's really good. It's not that at all. But anyways, it's a great song. And so I just was saying, this. it's kind of like that. Perfect timing. Okay? And so for an hour. So it's like, okay, I, I just encourage you to use this. I use it. And so I literally, I just pray. And until I hear that stop, which I'm, I know it's in an hour, I'm going to keep praying. And somebody messaged me and said, I want to try that, but I just know that, that kind of, there's a certain tribe of the church that uses that music and I don't want to touch it. I'm like, bro, you are missing out on an hour with God because you're worried that you're associating yourself with another tribe of the church. That's problematic. I want revival to be a reality. And we got to deal with the reality of a revival. And guess what? Our church doesn't have all the answers. We need to partner with the different faces of the church. I gave a few examples. I could have kept going, but, I'll, but here's, here's three. I praise God for the charismatic tradition. The charismatic tradition makes space in the sanctuary to encounter the power of God. And I would love to learn more from them in that way. I'm an awkward Baptist, you know what I'm saying? But I want it. I want the power of God. I want to be fully engaged in worship. And so I have been on a journey learning from my brothers and sisters in the charismatic tradition. Not only that, you have the contemplative tradition, which has done the most for my soul the last 18 months or so. The contemplative tradition makes space in the solitude to encounter the love of God. 
I have a spiritual director that tells me, you want to spend time with God? Just shut up. (laughs) And do what? Just shut up. And just be in his presence. I don't know what that looks like. But let me tell you, I've been encountering the love of God in a way I never have before because I was willing to step out of my stupid tribal lines and learn from other faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. There's another one, the commission tradition. That's us. What up? The commission tradition makes space in the city to encounter the mission of God. We need more baptisms. We need more people to fill this room. We need to be filled up to be sent out. We're on the mission of God. I didn't put this one in because I don't like emails, but you also have the, the Calvinistic tradition. Make space in the study room to encounter the knowledge of God. There's so many ways we can learn from our brothers and sisters. And we're just too dumb to learn from them. But verse 10, this is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church. The only way this is possible is through us. I saw a commentator this week that said, I thought it was a perfect illustration. They said, have you ever had a pill? You see the pill and you think, I just feel like death right now. And this little thing's going to make me feel better? No way. You take the pill, two hours later, you want to go on a boat and go skiing. Like, how did that work? This little thing, seemingly insignificant, seemingly so small. That's the church. We seem insignificant to the world. We may seem small, but friend, we pack a punch. And all God needs is a remnant. He just needs a few of us just to surrender to his power and his glory. Quit fighting over this stupid division and see what God can do. That is, guys, I want revival to be a reality. And so we must be ready for the reality of a revival. So let me encourage you. There will be suffering in the days to come. But Jesus already suffered for us. There will be serving. There has to be serving in the days to come. But Jesus already served us on the cross. There will be standing. I remember when I was 13, I had a vision surrender my life to the ministries. It was on 1 Kings 18. Elisha was at the Mount Carmel. uh, Sorry, Elijah. And God said, that will be like you when... I'm going to call you to stand when no one else would. Now, 15 years ago, that didn't make sense. Makes a whole lot more sense now. Are you willing to stand even when nobody else will? But you know what gives me the confidence to stand? Jesus is standing in my place already. Jesus, in fact, is standing for me and praying on my behalf that I may have the power and the words to speak. Jesus is daily interceding for us. Friends, there's no reasons for us to be discouraged. Paul says in verse 13, so I ask you, don't be discouraged over my afflictions. They are your glory. This was the plan. Don't get shocked. This is the way. And my prayer is that we would no longer be illusioned. May we be a disillusioned people. May we want revival to be a reality, but may we know the reality of a revival. It's uncomfortable. It hurts but it's so much better. I want to take a note from the charismatic or maybe the contemplative tradition. I'm try, I try to practice what I preach every once in a while. 
So I would love for us, for the next few minutes, this will be uncomfortable, but I just preached about how it's gonna be uncomfortable. I want us to actually spend time with God in the silence. Will you do that with me? Hopefully in your, on your way in, you received a communion cup. I would ask if you're a believer in Jesus, in the next few minutes, just spend time with God. Ask God, God, what do you want? Here's an empty slate. What do you want from me? Maybe you're terrified. Bring that fear to God. Maybe you want to do something. Ask, bring it to God and just sit with him. And during those moments, we're not going to do it in unison, but anytime, just partake in the bread and recognize that this bread represents the body of Jesus on the cross because he died in our place and he rose again. And the blood is the blood that he shed so that you and I can have one blood. We can be of one family and made us perfect in the presence of God. Partake in any time, but I would love for us, I'll stay up here and I'll pray to be done. But let's take a couple minutes to talk to God in the silence and give him full surrender.